Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. Greg, do you have a moment to talk? Sure, honey. I have an appointment at 120 with young Jeffrey. As you recall, 15 years ago, here in Secluded Crossing, I was scheduled to perform an abortion on the unstable Marlena Carrington, but I decided instead to take the fetus and implant it in my good-hearted but infertile wife, Emily. Our son was born, but then Emily was killed by an orangutan nurse, and you and I were married. In a secret Greek Orthodox ceremony. Even though neither one of us was Greek. But my evil clone Petrina is. Still, that doesn't explain why, the minute he got his sight back, Detective Cully Flamingo forced himself on his half-sister, Fancy Crane. And now, I have to tell Jeff, who thinks he's my son, that his real mother was possessed by the devil and conceived with Dr. Gazelle Prospect, a left-handed oncologist with bee-stung lips. I couldn't even focus on that because my lover, Smiley Canyon, a newcomer here at Secluded Crossing, turned out to have been switched at birth with Devin Magnolia III, heir to the Boulder fortune. It was Devin, whom I kissed in a dream, which cured my meningitis but caused him to drop dead. But now, Smiley is the real Devon, which means... Someone has to tell Xander the truth. That the ghost of Jillian... Inhabited Opal's body. Just so it could kiss Ryan. And that Sheila switched the paternity tests... To conceal that Eric Forrester... Was actually Bridget's father. Hey, what was it you wanted to talk to me about? I've been thinking, do you remember how we got here? Here to Secluded Crossing? Sort of. I mean... It just seems like one day I woke up in the middle of all these complicated storylines, but I don't remember how it all began. Now that you mention it, neither do I. I have no memory that predates the time Audrey, the flight attendant sister of Nurse Jana Taylor, fell off the yacht of Dr. Avocado Reef, the square-jawed director of Seaford Abbey Hospital here in Secluded Crossing. It's as if we're just in a dream, maybe a dream a dog is having as he snoozes by his supper dish in Perth, Australia. And when the dog wakes up, we all cease to exist? Uh, dogs sleep a lot. Then maybe there's time for the show about soap operas. What's a soap opera? I have no idea. And now the guy who says he watches... Oh no, no, he's waking up! We're all gonna die! I always loved you, Xander. Wait a minute, she loved Xander? That was totally not set up in the plot. I don't believe that. Uh, uh, that's so weird. Because I watched Secluded Crossing. I think I probably just saw almost every episode. Uh, all right, today we're going to be talking about soap operas. Uh, and, uh, well, we're going to be looking at them across a, a lot of, or through a lot of different prisms, let's just say. Um, and to get things going, we sent one of our many interns named Katie, this one uh, being Katie McAuliffe, out into the streets, the mean streets of uh, Phelps Landing or wherever soap operas take place uh, to, uh, to find out what people think about soap operas. Do you watch soap operas? No, nah, I think my mom does, though. I couldn't tell you the names of them, but I know they're on all day because she sits there and watches them ritually. What do you think she likes about them? The, the men, the good-looking guys, I think. The drama. So I'm from Germany. I watch German soap operas. They, they're just as bad as the ones here. I do not. My old babysitter used to, though. She watched The Young and the Restless for years. I remember that. Well, I used to sneak down the stairs to go watch it. It's not really my thing, no. There's not enough depth to the show for me. I used to watch them in the past, but got kind of boring, I think. 
It's always the same story. It's always about some drama of love, somebody hearing something that he's not supposed to hear, and then there's always like some quota person in there that has to fulfill a certain task. It's kind of like for the stay-at-home moms that their kids are napping. I, I swear that German guy is on a soap opera that I watch. I'm, I can't place his voice exactly, but I know he's on it. Uh, all right, so, you know, soap, soap operas, they do have a little bit of a bad reputation. Uh, on the other hand, as I pointed out before we went on the air, you know, I don't know, Julianne Moore just got a, an Oscar nomination. She was on a soap opera. So was Brad Pitt, so was Leo DiCaprio, so was Tommy Lee Jones, so was Meg Ryan, so was Marissa Tomei, Parker Posey. Name somebody. They were on soap operas, and they're good actors. We know that. We have in studio with me, you'll meet him in a little while, Ken Barnett, who's an actor right now at the Hartford Stage Company in Private Lives. Um, the show running there right now, but he had a recurring role on Guiding Light. Next year, he'll be uh, nominated for an Oscar. That's the way these things work. That's the, the circle of life, the natural progression. Uh, we'll, we're going to talk about that in a little while, about life on a soap opera. Uh, but before we get there, we need to sort of get an overview. We need to figure out what it is we're even talking about. Uh, so uh, joining us by phone is Mara Levinsky, senior editor at Soap Opera Digest. Uh, but before you even meet Mara, uh, you're going to meet Barbara Irwin, a professor of communication studies at Canisius College. Uh, she co-runs Project Daytime, a comprehensive research endeavor focusing on the study and monitoring of daytime TV, and the author of two books on the young and the restless. I'm impressed that there can be two books on the young and the restless. Uh, she's joining us from uh, WBFO in Buffalo. Um, so, um, Barbara, get us started. First of all, is there a sort of thumbnail description of soap opera? Is there a definition that kind of explains to the visitor from Germany uh, what a, an American daytime soap opera is? Well, it's a um, not sure that there's a very precise definition, but I can give you some of the conventions of soap operas that go. might help uh, to um, cast a picture of what they are. Um, when we talk about a traditional soap opera, we're talking about a daytime television drama uh, that's broadcast Monday through Friday, uh, five days a week. Um, certainly the term has been used to, to describe other kinds of television programming. But uh, a focus on family and interpersonal relationships is one of the keys to the kinds of stories that are told, uh, very interconnected lives of the people on the soaps, multi-generational stories. Um, they focus on moment-to-moment, -moment, everyday occurrences in people's lives, the intimacies of people's lives, personal moments, um, generally focusing on probably two or three core families within a given uh, program, uh, different social classes that those families represent, an ensemble cast, uh, and very character-centered drama uh, as opposed to story-focused drama. See, you know, uh, um, a lot of what you just said, if, if we didn't say what it was that you were talking about uh, and we offered up that description to uh, a literary critic... I mean, he or she, that person might say, well, those are some of the hallmarks of really good storytelling, of narrative, of fiction. That's what fiction should be. It should be focused on the real real kinds of interconnections uh, between people. It should be based more on character than on plot. Uh, it should be right. this. It should be that. Um, so mm -hmm. why do soap operas have such a bad reputation? When you, when you put it that way, it really sounds like that's the meat of drama. I mean, you're almost d describing, you know, the place of Eugene O'Neill or something. Right, um, so right. So why, why aren't soap operas regarded in the same pantheon with Eugene O'Neill? Well, I think um, soaps have kind of gone through a, um, uh, you know, different times in their history where they've been looked upon as being very good drama 
and and not so good drama. So I think um, to lump them all together and say they're second class citizens of broadcasting, I don't think necessarily we can do that. Although I think a lot of people who are non viewers of soaps right. see them that way. Right. The, the harshest um, judges are often the people who don't watch them. Right, right. Um, and I think one of the things that's important to note about soap operas is that, like I said, they're, they're Monday through Friday, five days a week, 250 episodes a year. Uh, and I don't think you can judge them against, um, you know, a primetime drama that's producing 13 or 18 or 20 episodes a year. These people are walking into a studio every day producing an 80-page script uh, and, you know, I like to say if people if, – if soap operas never existed and you walked into a television executive's office and said, I got this great idea for a new show, we're going to do an hour-long drama every day, Monday through Friday, 52 weeks a year, chances are they would say today it can't be done. Uh, but it's something that's been done for – you know, um, as t- in terms of soap operas, starting back on radio, 85 years of history of soaps, and there's no other form of uh, broadcasting that has that kind of history. Well, you know, and it's, as you suggest, there's sort of a Scheherazade quality to this, right? If the, if you stop telling stories and the emperor falls asleep, you get your head cut off. So, and, and that's kind of that the way this is. You've got to tell stories five days a week, and and in a way, it seems like this form also was invented. You know, not to fill time, that's the wrong way to put it, but to have steady content, steady daily content in a day part of the first radio and then television schedule into which the networks weren't prepared to pour huge amounts of resources. In other words, the dollars are going to go into prime time. On the other hand, they want something that they can use during the day to sell, among other things, laundry detergent. Um, and so uh, so there's this desire, right, to create a form that would work that way and a form that's almost closer to sort of of um, uh, almost preliterate storytelling to griots and to, to, to epic poetry that was just sort of spilled out uh, from the lips of some bard that, that you, just, you just have to keep the story going. And, and, and so that's a different demand. I guess that's what you're saying. It's a different demand yes, that, that is placed on almost any other art form you can think of. Right, right. Uh, and, you know, it's um, you, you mentioned the, uh, you know, they were created not necessarily just to fill time. They were created to sell soap, essentially, yeah. um, you know, hence the name. But uh, there was a need to or, or a desire on the part of advertisers to connect with women who were at home during the day. And um, soap operas were created as, a, you know, mainly by advertising agencies for those uh, soap product companies to reach that audience that they wanted to connect with. You know, and one thing that has always puzzled me is um, my sense, and, and I am one of these people who goes around having opinions about soap operas without really ever having watched them. So do feel free to tug on my leash every time I say something uh, okay. that's ridiculous. So, um, but it, 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 my sense here is that if you go back to the 50s and 60s, um, uh, especially the 50s and early 60s, uh, when standards and practices at networks were, you know, tuned up pretty high so that in June and Ward Cleaver, they slept in twin beds and so did Lucy and Desi, right? There was a, a married couple that had somehow or other produced children who were <laughs> characters on the show, you know, could not be even... It couldn't even be imputed that their bodies touched during the night. You know, that was sort 
sort of the way the rea- reality was I- at prime time. But my sense of soaps has always been not that they're lurid exactly, but there's just more hanky panky. Uh, and the, I, my sense, I could be wrong, is that there's always been, you know, uh, a little bit more hanky panky uh, on soaps than would have been tolerated at, you know, more censorious periods of prime time television. And I wonder what that's about and whether, in fact, the state of mind of somebody watching soaps during the day is a little bit different from sort of family hour at night when, you know, anybody might be watching. Well, I think if you go back to soaps in the 50s and 60s, uh, they were bound by the same standards and practices that that primetime was. Mm. Um, So you would uh, hear the same sorts of stories. We had to sleep in separate beds. If we were in a bedroom scene and we were sitting on a bed, we had to have both feet firmly planted on on the floor. Um, You know, there were all of those sorts of things that that were consistent with primetime and daytime. And I think obviously as... As things have um, changed over time, um, soaps have, you know, become more, um, more risque. Mm-hmm. You know, like you said, more hanky panky. But it, <clears throat> excuse me. Interestingly, if you talk with soap opera viewers, mm-hmm. um, that hanky panky is not the part of soaps that they really uh, are all that terribly interested in, or it's not the thing that gets them to tune in and keep tuning in to the shows. I just want to say that. Uh, That tends to be something that that an outsider will say, oh, soaps are, you know, people are always jumping into bed with everyone else on soap operas or something. The the implication being that they're plot-driven rather than character-driven. We want to see. uh, And so, by the way, I think I've never said the phrase hanky-panky in my life before. I (laughs) I don't use it very often myself. um, So if that's not what people tune into soaps for, is is it more the kinds of affiliations that they make with characters on the programs? Definitely definitely is. Um, I mean, the, people who are watching soap operas, and they tend to be longtime viewers, have um, seen characters age and, and grow old and uh, at the same time that the viewers are. Uh, so they see that lifetime of a character and they establish relationships essentially with those characters. Um, you know, these are people who come into these viewers' homes every single day uh, they rely on them. They depend on them. They get to know them. They get involved in their lives. Um, you know, there's been research that suggests that people sometimes know soap opera characters better than they know people in their own lives um, because they have that constant connection with them. Um, and uh, I'm sorry. Go well, ahead. I was just also I was wondering if you could also say a little bit about the the, the earliest stirrings of soap opera too, because I mean, obviously, it didn't start as a television form. It started as a radio form. Who who was making those radio shows? I mean, was it sort of just kind of a logical extension of what we think about today of a, a TV writing team, a production company uh, that's affiliated somehow with a network or, or selling a product to the network? I mean, who who created the first soaps? Okay, well, let's go back. Let's go back pre-soap first okay. of all, um, and you know, I'll talk about a little bit of what you were touching on, and that is this um, serialized narrative form that goes back to, you know, Scheherazade, of course. Uh, but more recently, mid-1800s serialized novels that were published in magazines, and people would wait for the next installment because they wanted to see what was going to happen next in the in the lives of those continuing characters. Um, fast forward to the 1920s, radio is relatively new, um, and there was a program called Sam and Henry on uh, WGN Radio in Chicago, uh, that eventually became, uh, you know, in a new incarnation, Amos and Andy, uh, which was a serial 
drama that was on the air um, six nights a week for in 10-minute installments. Uh, so people were starting to be groomed to anticipate the next installment of their favorite show. Uh, there was a woman by the name of Erna Phillips who lived in Chicago. She was a school teacher, and she was also kind of a small-time actress. Um, and she wrote the first soap opera, and it was called Painted Dreams, and it went on the air in 1930, uh, and again on WGN in Chicago. And um, it was about a woman, Mother Moynihan. She ran a boarding house, and, and she had a daughter, and uh, you know the daughter wanted a career, uh, which in 1930 was a little bit of, of a bold story to be telling. It was old versus new values and those sorts of things, focused on interpersonal relationships. Um, that program, um, you know, there was uh, that was 1930. Soon after that was a national uh, program on radio called Today's Children. Um, there was a, um, a husband and wife team, uh, Frank and Ann Hummert, who uh, kind of had a um, soap opera factory. So they were producing, um, you know, a number of different soap operas, uh, you know, Stella Dallas and, and those, um, you know, names that you might know. Um, and it was um, 1937, I think, is a kind of a milestone year for soaps because that was when The Guiding Light first one on the air, and that was Procter & Gamble's soap opera. So here is the um, home uh, product corporation uh, that has an advertising agency that's going to be very involved in the story. Erna Phillips was the creator of the show and the writer, and she worked very closely with Procter & Gamble and um, uh, Guiding Light, as uh, most people know, continued on to television and um you know, didn't go off the air until 2009 at the age of 72. Um, longest running dramatic uh, program in the history mm -hmm. of broadcasting. Um, but certainly, I mean, going back to, you know, 1940s, very popular on the radio. Uh, at one point uh, in the 1950s, there were as many as 60 different uh, radio soap operas. They were all 15 minutes long. Uh, and they occupied the airwaves during the daytime to reach this uh, female audience at home. Uh, and then it was in the early 1950s when soap operas made the transition to television. All right. We're talking to Barbara Irwin right now, professor of communication studies at Canisius College. She runs she co-runs Project Daytime, a comprehensive research into uh, um, daytime, the daytime TV environment. I want to add to the conversation Amara Levinsky. She's senior editor at Soap Opera Digest. Um, and uh, you've been listening to this conversation so far, Amara. But I want to talk a little bit about the themes that come up on soap operas, particularly, say, over the last 20 to 25 years. And one of the things that, once again, I'm, I don't have a lot of firsthand knowledge about so soap operas, but my sense is that soap operas have sometimes been ready to take on certain thematic challenges before primetime television whether it's talking very frankly about the cancer that a character has or AIDS or, or gay characters. Um, how much of that particular notion is true? Are soap operas a little bit uh, faster on the uptake with some of these topics? I would say it's it's quite true. In fact, when I was listening to Barbara talk about how soaps ha have long been bound by the same standards and practices as primetime television, uh, I was thinking about how the very first time the word cancer was uttered on television was actually on Guiding Light, and the writers really had to fight to get that done. But I think uh, soaps have often been a, a, a place for television to test the readiness of an audience, um, and they've broken new grounds on a number of different thematic uh in a number of different thematic directions, some of which you've, you've noted. 
Um, yeah, and actually, I mean, not that there hadn't been a few gay characters on television before this, but when Ryan Philippe as Billy Douglas uh, came out as gay, I mean, he was really, you know, it was like four or five years ahead of Ellen, and and in some ways maybe the first maybe fleshed out sympathetic character to be gay on television. Uh, he was actually not even the first oh. uh, gay character on daytime television, but he was the first gay teen, uh, which I think was quite impactful to the audience. But there had been uh, a sprinkling of gay characters uh, on daytime before, but maybe more to the stereotype of the day. Uh, there was a gay fashion designer, a male fashion designer on As the World Turns, for instance. But uh, I think it, it can't be uh, overstated how how m- much of a you know an impact that made on the audience to have uh, you know a lot of uh, audience members at home I think uh, felt as though some of them felt as though as though they weren't alone in their journey some others felt like they had come to know a gay person for the first time watching uh, Ryan Phillippe's character come out on One Life to Live and and become sympathetic to uh, his struggles not only with his own identity but with that identity being uh, not accepted by his family. Um. Obviously, some of this, some of what Barbara has talked about so far, um, some of the identity of soaps has to do with the rhythm of the day, right? You know, in other words, you know, there's people who are watching them for decades and decades or listening to them before they watch them. These were, not to stereotype the audience, but these are, in many cases, homemakers, you know, who are stopping their work or ironing in front of the TV set mm-hmm. or, or whatever. And, and so I'm wondering, as the rhythm of the American day changes, as the um, role assignments of American adults uh, alter, uh, how much of a challenge has this posed to the soap opera? I mean, people don't live quite the same way that they did in the 1960s or 70s. They absolutely do not, and it's been an enormous challenge, I think. Uh, but as you know, the workforce has changed, for instance, with women who might previously have been working inside the home have gone out into uh, the workforce outside of the home, you know, Thus also came the VCR and now the DVR, and so people have adjusted, you know, to find, uh, you know, times to fit this program that's important to them into their schedules. Um, we're, as we go along here, by the way, we really do want to invite you to call in with your questions and comments. And the sooner you call in, the better, because I'm going to start tying up phone lines pretty soon when I add more guests. But our number is 860-275-7266, 860-275-7266, if you have questions or comments about the world of soap operas. And if that seems too uh, daunting, you, you may tweet us at WNPR Colin. And that's WNPR Colin. We would love to uh, read and perhaps read out uh, your tweets. Right now, we're talking to Barbara Irwin, professor of Communication Studies at Kinesius College, and Mara Levinsky, Senior Editor at Soap Opera Digest. Well, Mara, let me just sort of complete that thought, and maybe both you and Barbara can talk about this a little bit. So in that challenging environment, and, and let me confess also, if it amounts to a confession, that although I haven't watched daytime soaps, I'm completely addicted to Nashville, which runs uh, in primetime on ABC and as far and has music that I enjoy quite a lot. But there's no getting around the fact that it uh, hews to a lot of the conventions of soap operas, except that it's probably even more absurd. Uh, and I'm I'm completely happy with that and addicted to that. And maybe this is an example of how schedules have switched around. You know, I'm really not in a position to watch soap operas, but here I am watching a soap opera. And so, I mean, one thing that did happen, and Mara, maybe you could talk about this first, and and then Barbara, is some of these conventions, starting maybe with Peyton Place or maybe earlier, started to move into primetime television just to go after those people who weren't watching it during the day. I mean, absolutely. I think that we have seen an influx of a lot of the storyline precepts and the manner of storytelling of daytime become sort of de rigueur in primetime, such that 
you know, with a primetime drama before was strictly episodic, which is which is to say that the plot did not bleed from one week into the next. We've seen that explode over the past several decades. And now, um, you know, almost across the board, primetime dramas have elements that, you know, build upon each other from week to week, much like the daily soap opera. And Barbara Irwin, as you look at that daytime TV environment, obviously you're seeing the demographic shift that I'm talking about. You're seeing the ways in which people organize their lives differently. So how does the daytime soap opera environment respond to that challenge? It's it's a huge challenge for daytime, and I think they're um, struggling with it and wrestling with it, and uh, I'm not sure that they've found an answer <laughs> uh, right now. Um, certainly, there is the you know the longtime loyal viewer that's that's staying with the four soaps that are left on the air, um, and I think that um, you know there is a um, uh, certainly an online community. I think the biggest challenge is finding the next generation of soap opera viewers because soap opera viewing uh, up until, um, you know, a decade ago was the uh, the viewing that was passed on from one generation to the next. And, um, you know, in, in, the, in the 70s and 80s, uh, college students would arrange their school schedules around their soap operas because they didn't want to miss them. I ask my students today if they watch soap operas, and none of them do. Uh, so I don't know where that next generation of soap opera viewers is going to come from. Um, it's a it's a, it's a challenge that's facing all of television, but I think it's more um, uh, magnified, I guess, uh, with the soap opera audience in the daytime. Uh, you know, with people just not watching broadcast television anymore, they're watching. Uh, you know, all my students, everything they watch is on Netflix. Uh, or Hulu or something like that. So, um, Game, of know, Th- Game, encouraging- of- Game of Thrones, basically a soap opera with swords. Right. Um, sure. it, I would suggest, Barbara Irwin, that you and Mara Levinsky and actor Ken Barnett, who's in studio with me, and uh, writer uh, Ron Carlovati, the head writer for General Hospital, that the four of us, or five of us, or however many people that is, collaborate on a soap opera that is strictly an app. But I'm sure there's 400 <laughs> of those on Kickstarter already. That's not a new idea. Uh, we'll take a little break. We'll come back with more of the guests that we already have, plus some of the guests that I just mentioned. We're talking about soap operas. Our guests include Barbara Irwin, professor from Canisius College, uh, Mara Levinsky from Soap Opera Digest. I'm just about to introduce you to actor Ken Barnett, who's currently at the Hartford Stage Company, uh, and Ron Carlovati, head writer for General Hospital. But before I do that, let me quick call here from Eric, who brings up a pretty interesting question. We've got quite a few calls that have come in here at 860-275-7266. You can tweet us at WNPR Colin. Uh, Eric, uh, you had a question. Well, go ahead. Ask your question. Except that he's not there. Uh, All right. So his question, uh, Mara and Barbara, and I'll start with you, Mara. His question was uh, whether somebody could comment on the state of minorities in soap operas. Um, Obviously, uh, like everything else, uh, I assume anyway, soap operas saw the need to diversify. So uh, Mara Levinsky, maybe you can just give us a sense of how that happened. Uh, Well, it happened um, actually kind of against the wishes of the networks. Um, Going back into the early 1950s, Guiding Light was the first show to introduce uh, black characters. James Earl Jones was on the show. Some other uh, prominent African-American actors soon followed. Um, But uh, 
Agnes Nixon, who was then the head writer of the show and went on to create All My Children and One Life to Live, really had to fight uh, both Procter & Gamble and CBS, which aired the show, to make that happen, um, reflective, obviously, of you know, the resistance in the cultural and in, in general. Um, so in a way, it has been an uphill battle, and, and it, you know, over time, uh, soaps have introduced uh, either you know, characters uh, on their own or families of different ethnic backgrounds, but because uh, soap operas, the communities, you know, are so interconnected and a lot of the shows came on the air all lily white and those are the characters that the audience is most connected to, it's been done with limited success integrating characters of color into the canvases. And I, I personally feel, you know, all four shows could do a better job of that. Um, but you will not see, you know, uh, in today's soap opera environment, quite the same, you know, uniform Caucasian uh, cast of characters. Mm -hmm. Uh, I, of course, you could always, uh, uh, in primetime, watch Empire, uh, which is also basically a soap Which I do. Yeah. Um, so uh, I want to uh, pull into this, uh, Ron and Ken, but first of all, let's start with uh, Ken Barnett, an actor. As I say, he's currently uh, in Private Lives at Harvard State, Hartford Stage Company, uh, and he played a recurring role on Guiding Light in the late 90s. Uh, not, I don't think, one of the sort of uh, epic, iconic Guiding Light roles, but a role nonetheless. So I guess I'm really interested for you, Ken, as an actor. First of all, what's the rhythm of soap opera life? If you're in a soap opera, what does that do to your day? Well, it's uh, it's a wildly busy uh, schedule. It starts uh, very early in the morning, and then it's all on the clock to try and get the, uh, an entire episode uh, in the can by the end of the day, as they would say. Uh, it's all it's all um, an effort to avoid putting the whole company into overtime. Uh, to try and get it all shot. So you take your character, you do some Stanislavski work on it, some exercises, uh, some breathing work, some Grotowski stuff, and then, what, around lunchtime you're ready to go? Yeah, sure, they give you time for all that stuff. No, yeah. not really, right? No, not really. Um, it's, all, it's extremely fast. Mm -hmm. uh, and, um, you know, it, it's, uh, it's an effort to just hold the lines in your head and, uh, and stand on your marks and be in your light and get it done. So you, you don't memorize the script the way you would mem memorize the script of Private Lives. or In other words, I assume you're working off small chunks of text. Correct. Uh, but, uh, you know, I will say for, the, you know, for me, to be clear, I, I played a relatively small part. I played an assistant, basically, to one of the major characters on Guiding Light at that time. Uh, and but he when he had a, a big episode, he would have to come in with the whole script memorized. Mm. And if he if if it were an actor who was really busy on the show, in other words, shooting several episodes in a week, that's a lot of material to memorize very quickly. Uh, for the smaller characters, you know, you memorize uh, just for your day that you come in and shoot for your particular episode. But it's a it's a it's a lot of uh, of material to try and cram into your head. It helps me understand how on Tootsie, um, uh, Dustin Hoffman kept missing his dates with Terry Garr. He was busy. He had to get ready. <laughs> exactly. Uh, he had to prepare an entire new identity and uh, for the script. Uh, all right. So joining us now also is uh, Ron Carlovati, head writer for General Hospital. So, Ron, we've been having uh, a very interesting conversation so far f uh, about soap operas from the perspective of various observers and scholars of soap operas and Ken, who's been on uh, on the screen on a soap opera. So th the writing of these things, it just seems so incredibly challenging. Earlier in the show, we were kind of comparing it to Scheherazade. You know, if you, she runs out of stories and the emperor falls asleep, she's sunk. Uh, do, do you feel that way when you're writing, when you're trying to extend a storyline across that many episodes? Um, yes, definitely. I mean, the short answer is yes. Um, you have probably figured out that we write roughly 
260 episodes a year. Mm -hmm. Um, We're on every day except for weekends and a couple of assorted holidays. So if you compare that to, you know, most television writers are writing a, a, a season of 22 episodes or even 13 episodes, sometimes eight or 10. And, and, you know, we're doing five a week on average. So it, it is a lot, and it is a lot of pressure to get it out and get it done. It's a machine that has to constantly be fed. And how many writers are, are working? And are they working in a writer's room? Are you sitting there sort of bouncing off ideas um, off another one? Yes. I mean, the writer's room is uh, currently my apartment in New York City <laughs> um, because uh, General Hospital uh, shoots in Los Angeles, and I live here in New York, and I have a lot of my team here, so we do meet together in the equivalent of a writer's room. And so I'm the head writer, and then I have another uh, four writers who we call the breakdown writers or the outline writers. And so they help me plot the story, and they write outlines for the episode. And then from there, those outlines are turned into scripts by another team of, of five script writers. And then I have an editor that kind of pulls everything together. I think it's almost impossible and probably unfair to ask you to let us be a fly on the wall, uh, even um, sort of theoretically, uh, in in one of those meetings. But in those meetings, is the conversation more about plot, more about character? I mean, how how do you wind up deciding that so and so is going to turn out to be somebody else who was switched at birth, or, or whatever whatever thing that is going to drive the story on along? Is it more about well, this is something that we we think should happen to to Jane, uh, as opposed to here's a crazy plot idea I just thought of. Well, it's all of that, really. I mean, I, in theory, I come up with the overarching story and I run it past the network and the executive producer. So, again, in theory, it's all been agreed upon that that, that Jane is going to get pregnant. And then I come in with the story and, and, and work with the writer to figure out the best way to tell that story. And because we have multiple stories going on at once, you know, the, the, the challenge in the writer's room is to figure out, you know, which stories to play on which days, you know, how to weave them together. Um, building usually toward a Friday cliffhanger is, is you know, the traditional model of, you know, you kind of write the show week by week, but with an eye toward well, where are all these stories going. Um, you know, I feel as though uh, a disservice is being done because the person who is at, knows the least about soap operas is asking all the questions. That doesn't seem right. So I'm actually going to let um, or ask uh, uh, some of our other guests. Uh, they may have uh, some very specific questions or, or general questions, ideally, for you, Ron. Uh, Mara Levinsky, senior editor at Soap Opera Digest. Uh, you've got uh, Ron Carlovati's attention for a moment. Is there something you'd like to ask him about the way things develop uh, on General Hospital? Well, I covered General Hospital for our magazine, so uh, Ron and I know each other quite well. And I guess my main question would be, can we report that Jane is going to be pregnant? <laughs> <laughs> I know, and even though she's a virgin, I mean, how are we going to make that happen? Yeah. <laughs> Different show. Um, right, yeah, exactly. Yeah, Mara and I, do, uh, we do know each other quite well. And, and um, you know, the, the, the skill with the, with the magazines is, you know, they're, they're so great as – you know, these commentators on what we do and also help to promote what we do. And, and, you know, the trick is when Mara and I do an interview is how much to tease the audience without giving away the whole story and where it's going. 
So that was another challenge of our job. Well, one thing that I wonder too, Ron, is, I mean, in an environment where, I mean, publications like Mars have been around for a while, um, uh, but predating that, I mean, if you go to the, the historic parts of soap operas that Barbara Irwin uh, knows so much about, you know, the ability of the viewers to communicate with the creators, it wasn't that it didn't exist, but it was probably in the form of letters to Procter & Gamble or something. Now we exist in this incredible feedback-rich environment where on websites and, and just, you know, every possible digital platform, anybody who cares about General Hospital can be talking pretty much nonstop about uh, how they feel about how things are going. To what degree does any of that influence you, or do you have to sort of shut all that, that noise out? Well, I actually am on Twitter, um, and I do interact with the fans, so I am seeing what they're saying about the show, and we occasionally do have uh, exchanges. Um, you know, it's a blessing and a curse. I love to hear from the audience, and I love to interact with the audience. I'll often watch the show live and then follow on the Twitter feed to see what they're saying about the episode. Um, you know, and it's a balance, because you certainly don't want to ignore the wishes of the fans. I mean, they are the people who pay our bills um, by watching the show. Um, but, you know, that said, it is our job to craft a story. We put a product out there. Hopefully you like it, you want to buy it, you want to watch it, you want to listen to it. If you don't, that's unfortunate. So it is definitely a line to walk because there are so many voices and they have so many different opinions about the show and about the characters that once you start going down that road of saying, well, so-and-so doesn't like this couple together, but you've got 10 other people over here that say they do, you know, you tie yourself in knots. So essentially you have to kind of go with your gut and then down the line, if the overwhelming number of viewers are telling you this is not working, then maybe you make a change then. Um, Barbara Irwin, uh, you have uh, the uh, full attention right now of the senior writer for General Hospital. A any questions or comments for him? Hi, Ron. Um, I do have a question, and I guess it's something that I think about uh, in terms of the long-term story and the long-arc stories and uh, the notion that the viewers have a shorter attention span today. And I'm wondering, as a writer, you know, for someone as as someone who's um, you know, who spent a considerable amount of time with Bill Bell, who was the master of the long arc story, um, do you feel pressured to tell faster paced stories today? And do you think that that in any way hurts the way viewers uh, connect with the stories and get involved in the stories? Yeah, I mean, you're definitely right. There is a pressure to, to move the show quicker and tell stories faster, and, and, and we've done that. Um, you know, I've been doing this for a really long time now. I started at One Life to Live. And, you know, when the ratings started to shrink, that was the, that was the moment that we started to, you know, change the way we did it. So people's attention spans were different. When I was growing up watching soaps, which I was, we had three channels. So you really had no options but to watch a soap opera during the afternoon. Now you have a million other options. So you tell the story quicker. That said, and so I like to have a lot of plots moving fast, and that makes our job harder because it used to be, you know, I remember being young. I loved these shows, but they would move very, very slowly, and, you know, sometimes we're boring, you know. Um, but um, so we move things fast. We want stuff to happen every day. We want cliffhangers to be big. Um, that said, I think what you pointed out is really important. The long arc of a story, these are viewers who are attached to these characters who will stick with you. And 
I think you get the most powerful stories when they play out over a longer period of time. You get bigger payoffs. You get more emotional investment from the audience. So the trick for us now is to still continue to have some stories that will play, let's say, over the course of a year. So the audience will wait for this giant payoff. But at the same time, week in and week out, day in and day out, a lot of stuff has to be happening to keep people's interest. Um, well, I've got Ken Barnett here too. Um, uh, as an actor, first of all, is when you're obviously you're you're in private lives at Harper Stage now. That's great. Um, is is soap opera work considered a good job? Are you happy to get at least at certain points in your career soap opera work? Well, certainly at certain points in your career. I mean, you know, as a as a I've done a, a fair amount of um, uh, television work uh, of all different kinds, um, but my my primary work is in the theater. And it's extremely hard to make a living in the theater mm-hmm. as an actor. So uh, g- getting a job on a soap opera is a is a terrific way. I mean, certainly if you're just out of school to get yourself started, uh, create a financial foundation, pay off your uh, student loans, things like that, it can, uh, it can launch a, a career in a really healthy way. It can also limit people just like anything else can where – you get seen as, oh, you're a guy who does that. Mm-hmm. Um, it doesn't seem like a schedule where you could also be doing something down on East 11th Street in a 50-seat theater. That, that's exactly right. It, it, is, it definitely is uh, uh, very restricting. You, you sign on to do this thing, and that's that. All right. Well, we're going to just uh, carry this conversation over a little bit. We've got to grab a break right here. Uh, we've got a lot of uh, wonderful guests here. We're talking about soap operas. Your questions are welcome. Tweet at us at WNPR Colin or call us at 860-275-7266. As the world turns, this portion brought to you today by Dawn, the dishwashing liquid that takes grease out of your way, and by Squeezably Soft Charmin Bathroom Tissue. My favorite soap opera is probably Cozy Fan Woolite. Boom. Today's show was produced by the big kid, Katie Talarski, and me, Kion Wolf. Our intern is Lily Tyson. Greg Hill appeared in the intro and tweets for us at WNPR Colin. The part of Bill Curry was played by Brad Pitt. For show pages, articles, and videos of the Faith Middleton Show staff right when they find out that Chris Prosperi had been switched at birth with Benedict Cumberbatch, visit our website, WNPR.org. On tomorrow's show, The Nose ponders the Oscar nominations. And now, back to Colin. All right, so uh, we're talking about soap operas. We have a, a great um, uh, a roster of guests here. Ron Carlovati, head writer for General Hospital. Ken Barnett, actor who's been in uh, uh, Guiding Light. Uh, he's now in Private Lives, which sounds like the name of a soap opera, but it's not. It's a play at Harper <laughs> Stage. Uh, and Mara Levinsky is a senior editor at Soap Opera Digest. And Barbara Irwin, professor of communication studies at Canisius College, runs, co-runs Project Daytime, a comprehensive study of the d- daytime TV environment. So, Barbara Irwin, one thing I wanted to talk a little bit about is the rise of other kinds of soap operas, specifically telenovelas. Telenovela is obviously this uh, incredibly powerful uh, medium on on Spanish language uh, television. Um, do they have? Do they in any way touch or have any impact on on daytime soaps in America as we know them? Well, uh, certainly, Poor Charles was uh, one of the shows that was influenced by the telenovelas uh, in terms of. Uh, uh, experimenting with uh, shorter story arcs, 13-week story arcs, 
uh, and um, I guess thought about going entirely to a telenovela format where they would have, you know, completely self-contained stories uh, and then start up with a new story after 13 weeks. Uh, They didn't end up going into it to that length. But um, I think if the American soaps could figure out what uh, the secret is to the telenovelas that would be that would be a great thing because obviously they're, they're huge uh, in uh, different parts of the world, Latin America particularly, and um, uh, but but they're different also. They're they're more melodramatic. They are um, uh, more um, you know, like I said, shorter story arcs obviously that don't require the investment over the long haul the way the American soaps do. Uh, but there there have been hints at at borrowing from some of their successes, but uh, but it's a different uh, if it's a different animal, I guess, hey, than a traditional American soap. And Mara Levinsky, there was one thing that you said that I I, I think I sort of flew by, and and it, we need to sort of come back to it a second. I think you said uh, I don't. We were talking about something. And you said I don't think any of the four are. Are there in fact four soap operas left? There are four soap operas left. Yes. And what are they? They are The Bold and the Beautiful, Days of Our Lives, General Hospital, and The Young and the Restless. Um, and Ron Carlevati, if I were a carrier pigeon and I looked around on the plane and there were only three other carrier pigeons uh, there, I'd be a little nervous. Um, I mean, how, how do you feel overall about the state of the genre if we're down to four soap operas? Well, it's, I mean, I feel really good about it now. It, it, it goes back, I, I started in 1996 as a writer's assistant at One Life to Live. And when I came in, it was sort of when soaps were on the decline. So you had this size hanging over your head for all of those years, and we saw it go from 10 soaps to 9 to 8 to 7. And slowly all the New York soaps went, and One Life to Live was eventually canceled. And so everyone thought that was it. And when I took the job at General Hospital three years ago, I was being told, not necessarily by the network, but in so many words, you know, this could be a six-month job because General Hospital will be next. And But what we saw was suddenly a turnaround in these shows. Although I will point out One Life to Live's ratings were going up when the show was canceled. Um, um, but that said, I think the decision had already been made. But, um, but what I saw was the show starting to have a turnaround and we went from years of every week or every month or every year the ratings going down to suddenly the ratings going up and i don't know if it's because everyone rallied around the four that were left you know you had fewer choices um i think maybe everybody stepped up their game and and had to make these shows better and more watchable and um so i think it's a a combination of reasons but Whatever the reason, I think we've seen suddenly these shows kind of level off and all this talk of soaps are over has gone away. And, and as you were talking about earlier, if you look at prime time, it, it's also over. You know, so right now I feel very hopeful, you know, for the, the four the four that are on the air. Um, so, you know, that's where we are right now. And, and, you know, um, I'm going to sort of uh, um, summarize. Uh, well, no, I'll, I can put this caller on the air. I've got time. I'm a little bit pressed for time right now. But here's Howard from West Hartford. Hi, Howard. Uh, make, it Hi. As, make it as compact as you possibly can. I grew up listening to radio soaps and watching them on TV. 
And I was wondering, or serialized shows, I was wondering if serialized radio shows would make a comeback. Well, I mean, first of all, you do have the example of Serial, the literally named Serial, the podcast that has uh, overtaken the world of podcasting. Uh, it's a nonfiction uh, serialized thing. But, um, but Barbara Irwin, I mean, in a way, everything is serialized. I mean, that's kind of the point that, that uh, Mara has made. It's also a point that Ron has made, that at one point, you, you know, you could look at uh, soap operas maybe in the 50s and say they, they sort of owned serialization the way Dickens and his peers owned serialization when novels were serialized in newspapers. But basically what's I mean, when I was growing up, there was no 13 arc, you know, Mannix uh, plot. You know, it was right. as Mara said, there was a one Mannix and then there was another Mannix and then there was another Mannix. It was a different thing every week. It, it, one of the problems, I w- challenges for soaps is basically everybody stole their format. Right, right. And you can even look at, uh, I mean, we've been talking about drama, but you could look at um, reality programming and look at something like Survivor or Big Brother or those kinds of shows that are, um, you know, borrowing on all the conventions of soaps, the, uh, you know, the ensemble cast and the continuing story from week to week and uh, and those, uh, you know, interpersonal relationships that drive those shows. Uh, in terms of radio, um, I'd like to see soaps on the radio. I'd like to see a, a, a simulcast or something like that. I think that might be something to um, to help build an audience again for the, you know, the people who are working during the day that can't watch TV, but they can certainly have a radio uh, and listen to the soaps. So I think um, I think there's potential there. All right, we're working on a public radio soap opera. Except that I think it would be really boring. It would be like just people talking about articles that they'd read about glaciers. Uh, but it's, it, I don't know, maybe that could work. Who knows? Uh, Ken Barnett, people should go and see Ken Barnett in Private Lives at Hartford Stage. Go see everything at Hartford Stage because Darko Tresnek really is a genius. I mean, we really do have this incredible director in our midst, uh, so don't miss anything that he directs. Ron Carlovati, he's going to keep uh, General Hospital flying uh, for years to come. Uh, the, they're down to four, but it's the big four, the immutable and unmovable four. Uh, Mara Levinsky, a senior editor at Soap Opera Digest. Thanks for all your thoughts on this. Barbara Irwin, professor of communication studies at Canisius College. We would have been lost without you. We would have been especially lost with, without Katie Tularski, the big kid. She's the executive producer here at WNPR, but she consented to produce an episode for us, and that was very, very exciting. So we'll be back tomorrow with The Nose, which in its own way is kind of a soap opera. We'll be talking about the Oscar nominations, of course, as well as, well, you'll just have to wait. That means I haven't figured it out yet. Lo que está mal, mi amor. Me enteré de que mi hermana no es mi hermana. Ella es un alien. ¿Cómo es eso posible? Dígame usted. Superman! (laughs) 